Mad Beef is kept going and growing by generous support from Skater HQ. Bill and the team have been heavily involved in the inline skating community since 1991 and continue to support competitions, skaters, and now a podcast. You can visit Skater HQ at one of their Sydney shops or shop online at skaterhq.com.au. Also, big thanks to our Patreon supporters. It really means a lot. If you want to become a patron of the podcast, find us on Patreon and pledge a monthly contribution. Even just $2 a month would be a huge encouragement. Hi, this is Mad Beef, the Australian Rollerblading Podcast. I'm Mikey Lynch, and in this episode, I'm going to throw out a whole bunch of theories and reflections on what caused the decline of rollerblading and what might bring it back, whatever bringing rollerblading back might mean. I mean, I've touched on this occasionally, and some of the people I've interviewed, most recently, Sassamora, touch on this in various ways, and it's a question everybody has, but it's not been something that I've kind of gone out of my way uh, to talk about and address and answer, uh, partly because I feel like it's sort of speculation and this kind of speculation usually is only super, super clear a long way down the track, you know, and so everyone's just left guessing, drawing on their particular hang-ups and issues and opinions and then giving them extra gravitas by saying this particular opinion is so important because people failing to agree with me killed rollerblading you know that kind of um that kind of thing so um you know like i haven't really sort of touched on it a whole lot but it's worth kind of toying with a little bit um it was actually kate who messaged me and um prodded me to do this shout out to kate she said um, i'm not sure if you've done a podcast on it can you do a whole one on the rise and demise of rollerblading it's such a bummer given where it went, X Games and all, and right back in the day and being so mainstream into the back lot, I have no idea why it died such a violent death. Um, you know, and, and that's, um, uh, you know, that's a thing that um, I think, especially when you come back to blading, you just get really hit with is, you know, wow, what happened? Where did blading go? My goodness, you know, and, uh, and and that's one of the things you cope with, you know, where are the brands I thought were the brands, and what are these brands that are now the brands, and what, that brand's gone? <laughs> All this kind of stuff. Um, although, interestingly, um, I think now would be a more interesting, more familiar territory in some ways for people than when I came back four years ago, um, because... Roaches is now stepping up their game again with the starting of them skates and Valo shutting up shop as the kind of a aggressive kind of tentacle of Roaches. Um, you know, when I came back, I sort of looked up the Roaches website just because I used to skate them and they were just one of the big, big, big aggressive brands. Then you come back and then you go, wow, like, what? They've done nothing. They're nowhere. They just have like a side web page with a couple of, with like one aggressive skate. Um, so that was a real adjustment for me, going, yeah, roaches and rollerblade aren't like the big players. Um, uh, but with them skates starting now, roaches is stepping up its game and gathering a team and putting some energy in. So that might be a little more familiar. Anyway, I digress. Uh, you come back and you suddenly go, what the hell happened to rollerblading? What caused this? What, you know, and, and look, I mean, one of the most helpful things that I think most people who come back to blading encounter pretty quickly through their Googling is the barely dead documentary from whatever that was 2008 or something 
Um, and, and that barely dead is really helpful in joining the gaps and filling in the dots and, and retelling both the story you're familiar with as well as stuff that happened since. Um, that's really worth watching and I think most people end up watching it. I think also super helpful in terms of just getting perspective historically um, would definitely be listening to um, uh, the Angie Walton interview that the Mushroom Blading guys did on their How to Be Unpopular podcast and the um, Chris Edwards interview that the Power Movement did recently. Um, I think they're both really, really helpful in filling in the, the gaps a little more. Um, uh, and perhaps one of the Brian Aragon interviews, either the Power Movement or on YouTube, um, the Lino, Ricardo Lino interview, uh, that also sort of fills in a little gap of another section yet again. So, I mean, look, anyway, you, you kind of get the story, you get the fill in the picture, and you go like, wow, rollerblading used to be massive and used to be money in it and people used to be able to make a living from it, and now it's like nowhere and no one talks about it and it's struggling and it's, you know... There are very few shops, there's very, brands struggle to keep afloat, very few pros can make a living doing what they love. What went wrong? What's the problem? You know, and there's all sorts of theories, or this, that, or the other. And I mean, some of them really are just kind of opinions, right? You know, I mean, one that's, um, you know, that comes up is that people say, oh, we're too negative, and it's that negativity that killed rollerblading. But you know what? I don't think negativity kills things on its own. <laughs> it takes a whole lot more than just snarky people to kill something, um, you know, oh, you know, rollerbladers having, not having a clean image and being too much smoking pot and drink, getting drunk. Yeah, again, I don't think that on its own kills things. It's a much more complex beast than that. You can't just throw it at, at this or that opinion or this or that person, much bigger factors. Um, and so, so, look, I want to look at this. In some ways, I, I find this fascinating, um, and I feel like I can bring a different perspective to this because at the same time as I witnessed this conversation happening with rollerblading, I witnessed the same kind of conversation taking place because I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian pastor. I work with university students at the University of Tasmania in Hobart, Australia, and um, and that's what Christians in the Western, Western world are asking as well, is, man, what... what went wrong and and where are we now and what does it mean to be where we are now in culture and how do we how do we operate in this space what does the future hold how do we organize for a future you know the answers are very different obviously with um christianity and you know i mean it's not like um (laughs) it's not like rollerblading was involved in the crusades um or something like that but um uh it's still there's some points of overlap that, that make it fascinating um What killed rollerblading? Well, in the podcast conversation with um, Sesame Mora, part of his reflection was uh, the division between uh, street and vert killed our sport. We were too small, he said, and then we divided up even smaller with this kind of strong, blunt division. I only do street, I only do vert, I only do park. And we just couldn't sustain that. It divided us when we were already too small and trying to um, uh, trying to contend. And... and it, that was an issue, um, he said. Um, I mean, he chucked a few other bits and pieces in that, that section of our conversation as well, where he mentioned that we didn't really have a, a Dave Mirror or a Tony Hawk. We didn't have an, an American hero, you know. There was, there was Cesar and Matt and 
from Australia or there was Chris from France or there was the Yasutoko brothers from Japan. But where was the past Chris Edwards and Arlo Eisenberg into the then that next season? Who was the, who was the great American champion of um, particularly vert skating? Um, but, but was he talking more than that still? Was there, you know, uh, when it came to the competitions and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, how fair, how true is that? You know, um, uh, that, I mean, he was there. He was there at the centre of that, in a way, that that, that you or I weren't. <laughs> and so got to give credit to that. Um, and I think there is an insight in the sense that going um, marketable, centralised figures um, are really... Um, are really important to building momentum around a sport and the economic engine which is the United States is really important in building momentum uh, and sustaining momentum around a sport but you know I mean was it you could say yeah after Chris Edwards there was no American champion hero vert skater but there, I mean, there were a lot of American champions through that era weren't there the late 90s into the 2000s in street and spark park and competitions so you know, that uh, it's an interesting thought. That division as well, I mean, how much does that explain everything? I mean, it's in the end, in the end Vert Street was still operating um, side by side and still appearing side by side up until um, the early 2000s in the X Games. So, you know, to, to say the division killed our sport, that was one piece of the puzzle. Was it the whole thing? I don't know. You get a little closer when you say, wow, getting kicked out of the X Games in, when was that, 2005? Um, getting kicked out of the X Games, that's what really killed our sport. Um, it was it was the, the powers that be in the X Games, and some people say the failures of our representatives involved at that level, um, you know, that they failed, um, failed us, so it is alleged. Um, uh, <sighs> And, and yeah, sure, there's personality and there's politics involved, no doubt. And yet also there's an economic level to that, that if interest and viewing audiences were declining anyway, if rollerblading was in decline as it was rapidly in the late 90s into the 2000, early 2000s, um, then in some sense it just might make economic sense to pull the plug. On, on giving um, visibility to inline skating in the X Games in the United States. Do, do, do you see what I mean? So it's, is that what came first, the chicken or the egg on that one, I think, needs to be? Maybe keeping it in the X Games by courageous leaders and um, generous um, execs would have helped. Sure. But, um, you know, I, I don't think you can really pin it down to that. Another thing Sessa said was that it was um, a lot of people at the top... Um, uh, you know, were were the suits of the big corporations that were riding the wave of this big fad, um, and they were making decisions that were uh, strong decisions in the best interest of the sport. But they were more just trying to go, how can we look cool? Sessa said, um, and how much that's true of which and what corporations and companies and and representatives. You know, that's that's possibly in the mix, you know, as well, and and and. You know, I'm going to come back to that politics, the X Games, and that, that executive decision making because I think all of those things are parts of the puzzle. Um, 
But what killed rollerblading? Well, <laughs> a bunch of things. Um, uh, and part of what killed it was it inevitably was going to die from what it was. Because we need to ask the question, what made rollerblading? What made rollerblading what it was at its peak? I mean, it's hard to pin down the numbers, but something like in the late 1990s, rollerblading was in the United States somewhere in the 20s to the low 30s million participants. 20, 30 million participants. And to give you an idea, the number of participants in skateboarding now is somewhere around 6 or 7 million. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it was, just, it was one of the most popular sports of all in the late 1990s. Um, you know, another article I read said that from 87 to 95, the growth of inline skating spiked 637%. <laughs> you know, that would, how big it was in 87, you know, obviously you're starting at a low amount. Um, you know, it can grow from 1 to 637, and that's 637%. I mean, that's the problem with percentages, but you get the idea. It did grow enormously in a way that very few sports ever do. Do you see what I mean? Um, and so what what made it that would be a fascinating thing to study. You know, it's a, uh, it was a, a lull in skateboarding. Um, it was a, a demographic baby boom. More of that in a second. Um, it was a great new re-engineering of roller skating and ice skating, which are great things that brought the best of roller skating, the best of ice skating, made something easier to steer, to manoeuvre, more comfortable to do on the street than roller skating is. Um, you know, it just came at the right moment and then hit the right places, you know, you know to even look at lifestyle and demographic shifts that perhaps shifted towards rollerblading friendly places at a time when fitness was a great point of interest. Just a series of things aligned at just the right moment and rollerblading became a phenomenon. It became a fad. It became a thing that, you know, toy makers and sports manufacturers dream of that you can't engineer um, uh, so that it was able to provide astonishing pay and sponsorship and opportunities and travel and um, an economy in a way that very few sports, very few sports, let alone new sports, can. Um, you know, and, and, and so, in a sense, you could say, like, this phenomenon, this revival phenomenon, um, this fad phenomenon happened with rollerblading, uh, like the yo-yo fad or something that just would never, could never be sustained on the sort of scale um, that it was at first, um, or at least not in a linear way. It couldn't explode that quickly and then hold that degree. It would be very unlikely to be able to then hold that degree of power, grow that quickly and stay that massive. You know, I mean, it would be interesting to compare it to other newish sports, futsal or um, basketball or something like this, and go, well, how, you know, how, what was their growth actually like and what's the sustained growth actually like? It, you know, it's, we need kind of comparisons on that um, to get a sense of it. You know, so it, it declined, it fell back, you know, into the tens of millions and maybe what is it now? All forms of inline skating, not just aggressive, is it two million? I think Frank Stoner says aggressive skaters is 20,000 uh, worldwide. It's back into a, an amount, 
uh, that's not dead, you could say, uh, but has actually landed back to some extent in its natural space. <laughs> Um, you know, it, it surged and it had to collapse. It just couldn't sustain that bloat. It was like a bubble. It was like the, the, the dot-com bubble or the housing, you know, um, GFC, housing uh, toxic mortgages uh, bubble that eventually had to burst in its, in its form um, and then had to find a new equilibrium. Um, uh, so, you know, it depends on and so when you ask what will bring rollerblading back, what will bring it back to 30 million people in the United States? <sighs> a profound religious revival. Don't, don't hold out for that. <laughs> Has anything been that? I mean, is scootering quite that? I, I, I found it hard to get freestyle scooter statistics. Um, so if anyone knows what they are, but I, I wonder if scootering is anywhere near that. Um, its increase hasn't been like that. Um, and so... Um, to bring rollerblading back may well be not so much to bring it back. Don't think about bringing it back to 20, 30 million, but maybe what would it take to bring it up to skateboarding, up to that 7, 8 million? Uh, you know what I mean? That might be a more worthwhile question. Why isn't it there? It should be there. It should be there. It's got all the complexity and uh, difficulty and... Uh, flexibility, uh, transport potential of skateboarding and scootering. It's got an easier entry level like scootering has. Um, uh, but one could say it does look cooler <laughs> in some ways than scootering looks. Um, it, it, it provides possibilities that none of those other action sports, uh, except for roller skating, quad skating, has in the sense that it, it branches out into hockey and, and recreational speed and slalom. It's got a lot of potential uh, in that sort of way. Um, uh, so it should be. So what does it take to get back to that? Yeah, to seven, to eight, to ten million, um, not 20 or 30 million is worth asking. Um, and when it gets to that, how many... Uh, you know, what industry would that look like? You know, like how many industries can pay lots of their professionals and have a really thriving industry? Um, and those that do, how do they do it? It's not just through selling skates and T-shirts, is it? But it's sponsorship and, and, and commercial engagement and other sorts of things, establishment of foundations. We'll come back to some of those things. But there are other things that create the economic engine for that, uh, much more than simply the number of participants. And that's the kind of maturity of a sport, that surfing or skateboarding, that we can learn from them, that BMX, that skateboarding suffered from at one point, that BMX suffered from at one point. We can learn from these things and say, well, you know, what are the things that actually uh, create some degree of a sustainable economy? While not necessarily thinking it's going to be basketball or American football or tennis or uh, these things that can create whole careers in that full professional sense. I mean, not every, uh, you know, Olympian at the Olympics spends all their time, full time on a really comfortable salary being a sportsman, you know, and, and so on and so forth. So thinking all that through. Um, uh, yeah, so, so in a sense, that's what killed rollerblading was it was inevitably going to die. What started it, it created this fad. There was a burst... Collapse and now it's got to build in a more mature, sustained way. I mean, I'd love to be able to cross-check that with scootering, um, uh, you know, to see what what was the what 
was the graph like for scootering from 2000 to today? Um, did it enjoy a slower, steadier burn? It definitely, I don't feel like, although we now see scooter kids swarming the skate park, <laughs> you know, but I, still I don't think there was the same cultural fad-like craze that rollerblading had in the early and mid-1990s. You know, it seems to have more of a steady burn and maybe has enjoyed the, a rise in, um, in the internet age where multiple diverse uh, hobbies and lifestyles are more normal and so the mega the mega culture uh, very few things can be that mega blockbuster in quite the same way that things were in um, in the 1990s um, yeah so you know so that's part of it just young and quick and victim of this fad revival dynamic you know, it was doomed. Um, in the same way that massive religious revivals, you know, they, they surge uh, <laughs> and then settle and, and things have changed. The landscape has changed as a result, but, but not anywhere near the same scale as at the height of the, the enthusiasm. That's the first big chunk of thought, right? This, um, a second big chunk of thought is it is worth considering what social and cultural dynamics more generally have gone on in the last 20 years that just make the last 20 years different to the previous 20 years. Um, action sports, at least street action sports, surfing is, I think, much more stable, but at least street action sports and snow action sports have been in, in decline generally. So skateboarders are getting older too, in general, and its participation rates are declining in general. You know, so it's just worth going, well, okay, so there's... There's other things going on. The inline skating was perhaps particularly like the canary in the coal mine, that when the canary in the coal mine dies, you know, everyone else in trouble real soon um, uh, as well. Um, you know, that, that, that maybe rollerblading by its vulnerability, it just surged, uh, but it was, it was flimsy in its surge. And so when things began to collapse, it felt it and it fell hard. And because it, was, it had scaled itself around massiveness, it couldn't cope with with steady, sustainable systems. Um, but maybe it's a sign of a general decline, right? Um, and, and one aspect of that is is the birth rate in the Western world has steadily declined, um, although it enjoyed a boom in the 1980s. The 1980s to the early 1990s was a time of a baby boom in the United States, and uh, you know, in terms of just kids born, that's when I was born, that's when a lot of you guys who are listening to this were born, um, a lot of the people who took up inline skating were born in this baby boom in the 1980s, um, uh, and there hasn't really been a baby boom like that ever since. Birth rates have declined again, dropping off after the 1990s, and so, except in Australia where <laughs> the Liberal government in the... Um, in the 2000s, offered a financial a thousands of dollars baby bonus for actually boosting the birth rate in the country, and so you actually got thousands of. I mean, how is this? This is weird for my American listeners who, you know, couldn't imagine this. I imagine, but there was a thing where actually, if you had a kid, it was like have one for your family and one for the country is what it was like. And if you had a kid, the government gave you thousands of dollars, and at least in part for that reason, uh, and also partly because the 
baby boom of the 1980s. We're starting to have kids in the 2000s, obviously. Um, uh, led to an upswing of, of, the, of the birth rate in the 2000s in Australia. But with this decline, means there's, there's a general decline in the number of younger people. And so that could be part of the factor as well. Uh, and a final factor in the midst of that is, yeah, <laughs> scooters aren't rollerblading and skateboarding what, um, what rollerblading was to skateboarding in the sense that scooters are easier at the entry point than rollerblading is, just as rollerblading is easier at the entry point than skateboarding is. You can take it up quicker and have fun almost straight away and do tricks almost straight away on a scooter. Um, just as you can with rollerblading, uh, compared to skateboarding, where a skateboarding is a much higher point before you can really enjoy yourself, let alone do tricks on it. Um, and so scooting has the easier entry level of rollerblading, coupled with the ease of being able to jump off it, so it's kind of a safer form of falling. It has the ease of falling skateboarding has with a lower entry level of rollerblading. And that's not saying anything against how difficult and impressive scootering can be at the upper end of things. Um, it can be impressive you know, uh, although it's still not my cup of tea and I'm allowed to not particularly like the look of scootering. You know, that's allowed. You can not hate on scooters and be respectful of them and hospitable to them while still not particularly liking their sport and wishing they'd take up blading. That's allowed. <laughs> um, uh, it still is um, uh, at the entry level, it's easier and that's possibly another factor as well, just a standard that was cheaper, easier, safer, entered the marketplace and pushed out blading and skateboarding in the same way that blading pushed out quad skating um, uh, and so on. So there's other cultural dynamics uh, more generally going on. It's worth bearing in mind that, that rollerblading just became victim to. Um, so that's that's a, another factor. Um, uh, so, so too young, quick, the fad explosion was bound to first eventually um, other cultural dynamics in the western world second factor um, a third factor and this is a thing that barely dead picks up rightly i think um, and i think most analysis um, rightly identifies is um, which i think is a huge part of it is how this massive sensational cultural phenomenon which rollerblading was in the 90s then got culturally located as um, as daggy, as tacky, as lame. <laughs> you know, and almost immediately there was a sense of that, and especially the birth of aggressive inline skating, which deliberately said it's not rollerblading, it's aggressive skating, and deliberately identified itself in contradistinction to the rollerblading, spandex, dancing, fluoro, boardwalk image. Um, yeah, it was was really almost immediately feeling this sense and trying to then say, no, no, we can, we can be like skateboarding. We can be something gritty, something edgy, something cool. And yet credit to Daily Bread and Chris Edwards and Arlo Eisenberg and Senate and all of that for, for showing what could be um, and that they've created what, what inline skating is now in a massive way. But they were in charge of this larger cultural vibe, this zeitgeist, this framing of what inline skating was. Um, the way they put it in the Belly Dead documentary is it in, in the 1990s that began to be this time, you know, like grunge music and this concern to be authentic and alternative and real and genuine and, and not sell out 
all that stuff that was so intense and earnest about the 1990s, in that context, rollerblading became a symbol of poser culture. It was the Folex, like the Rolex, the Folex of, um, of action sports. Um, um, and I think that, that spot on it, it got captured, not only with particularly associated with recreational skating, but then out of that, just with daggydom, it just became this symbol, a joke that was assumed to have been made, as I picked up on in a, an episode ages ago, talking about the screw tape letters and, and flippancy. Rollerblading became a flippant, easy joke, you know, captured in that, um, uh, that, that insult gag of, um, you know, what's the toughest thing um, about rollerblading? What's the hardest thing about rollerblading? Having to tell your parents you're gay. Having to tell your mum you're gay. It, was, it just it became this associate, you know, in a context in which being gay is a really bad thing, right? Like, and so, so this, this associating rollerblading with this camp, lame, uh, cringeworthy, fluoro, dated, sellout, it just became an easy thing to just drop in to jokes, to gags, to situation. Rollerblading became just this depressing thing. Um, and that, what can you do with that, you know? Um, well, it's more than that, right? Because what skateboarding then did is push at that. And so the the resurgence of, uh, or the, the rear guard or the, the establishment action sport skateboarding, um, although it was in, in a, experiencing something of a decline compared to rollerblading, it, it, had, it had established a presence and a permanence um, and with its powerful organs of communication influence, it fed that. And it had the power and the ear and no doubt the advertising executives, no doubt the television executives, of course the magazines, the, in a million ways, small and big, implied and explicit. Um, not all skateboarders, not all skateboarding companies, not all skateboarding people, but that was clearly one of the things. Yes, skateboarding, sporting, together with these other cultural factors was able to help play a part and kill rollerblading. <laughs> uh, it did. Um, it, it was able to pull the levers uh, and, um, and kill the thing. And one of the ways of, was then the removal from the X Games, yeah. Not being visible, nationally visible as this, as one of the contenders of serious action sports. Absolutely. That's putting the squeeze there so that when Rollerblade experienced a natural decline, uh, to squeeze it out even further um, when the opportunity came, doubtless was a thing. But a larger element of this was also not necessarily deliberate, but just the fruit of this was Rollerblading didn't, in the 90s and 2000s, find many established places to just be part of the uh, the cultural imaginarium. <laughs> That's a, um, uh, a philosopher Charles Taylor's way of describing the, 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 the imaginary conceptual vision of the way the world is that a culture has. Um, 
And in our vision of the way the world is that our culture has, um, skateboarding and surfing and, to a fair extent, BMX, um, they're things that exist in youth culture and young adult culture and even ageing adult culture is just things that you'd have that would be there. You know, scootering's not there yet, I don't think. And that'll be interesting to see. Again, it's going to be fascinating to see what happens with scootering over this next 10, 20 years, right? It's had this slow burn of growth. Um, how long really has freestyle scootering been around in a serious way for? What's, what's, yeah, that, that, all of that will be really intriguing because I think scootering hasn't established itself in this way yet. Um, uh, it's it's not weird to see um, the latest, not the not the latest, the 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 one before the latest Spider Man. You know the um, the one that Andrew Garfield Spider Man. That wasn't really what was the point of that Spider Man Spider Man. That one. He skateboarded. Peter Parker skateboarded. That's just like oh, whatever. Of course he did. You know it's 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 normal to have skaters to see people skateboards just in film as part of a character. You don't think twice. You just go yeah. Well, sure, of course, right, fine. Um, but not that, that's not that. You don't see that with rollerblading. Um, and that's where the most important cultural artefact, I think, for rollerblading, what was lacking a fair bit in the 90s and 2000s, and what needs to be found avenues for going forward, is the casual appearances of rollerblading. It's not airborne. How, however fun Airborne is as a movie, um, or The Prayer of the Roller Boys. It's not those exploitation movies that are just about the fad. No, 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 they're not what really establishes rollerblading in the, the cultural consciousness. Far more important are things like rollerblading in Power Rangers and Batman and uh, the Mighty Ducks and even the recent, the most recent Ninja Turtle movie, which has an awesome Krang in it, by the way. But um, even, um, not Casey Jones, but the other guy whacking on, um, oh no, Casey Jones. Yeah, is one? Yeah, maybe? Yeah, strapping on kind of wheels and, and rollerblading. But far more important, because it just establishes rollerblading as a thing that's there, and it's part of the world. And that's where, um, I mean, the problem with all of those, of course, is that, that to some extent they're all pretty tacky kind of appearances. You know, it's summarised in like that um, uh, Heartbreak Kid movie with Alex Denitriatis where he's there with the teacher on the cover and they're wreck skating. You know, the problem with it is it features in that kind of tacky, cheesy way. Um, uh, but that's where Heartbreak High is the most, um, at least that I'm aware of, the most sort of, mature expression of the kind of thing I'm talking about. Australian after-school um, soap opera with some really great, really great early Aussie aggressive skaters in it. Um, John Pollard and um, and Cal, Cal Mulvey, who's gone on to become a you know, Hollywood actor. Both were great skaters. Both were in, um, you know, early skate videos, VGs and stuff like that. Um, uh and, and rollerblading was just part of the world. It was part of what they did. It was, um, I guess, rollerblading. There was rollerblade competitions at one point. There were bits where Cal Mulvey's character, Brazik, would go and blade down at the Bondi ramps. But it was just woven in to the story. And 
just like what what helps the visibility of religious minorities or sexual minorities is not um, not having TV shows all about being gay or all about being Muslim or all about being Mormon. Not so much that. What's really valuable is just having characters who happen to be gay, happen to be Muslim, happen to be Mormon, woven into a larger world. Not the token character. The only thing about them is they're gay or they're Christian or they're rollerblading. Not the um, not the entirely uh, exploitation show that's entirely exploiting that concept or that cause, but just woven in. And that's there wasn't heaps of that for rollerblading, just like there isn't heaps of that for scootering at the moment. Um, and that's part of what I think we need to look to and think about is how to do that, how to weave that in, um, you know, into just a wider awareness. Uh, and I think we're starting to get that in all lots of just little ways, I think. Um, that's the awareness of um, uh, going, I just want to be out rec skating and be seen skating. Um, in my community is just to make rollerblading a thing you see. It's just part of your cultural imaginarium. To just um, uh, that's part of the logic of the um, uh, is it Matt's um, unusual rollerblading Instagram and whatever else is that he's just wanted to throw it going like gimmicky, gimmicky weird stuff, unusual rollerblading stuff. That's part of people's. They will see weird, crazy, awesome rollerblading stuff as part of their weird, crazy, awesome kitten pictures and whatever else, you know, sharks and scooter backflips, whatever. You know, um, that was part of Sessa's point about the role of vert skating as the spectacular. The spectacular um, skating is needed alongside the, um, the core technical street skating. Um, just as the wreck skating, as a lot of people increasingly are saying, you know, is really important. It's just this, this baseline thing. Um, yeah. Um, and, and, and then the final observation is that I think that the, the part of the process of what we've been, it seems, grappling with and, and pivoting to and figuring out ever since is what it means to build a mature, that's a big word that pops up in the Barely Dead documentary, a mature industry, a mature sport with depth, with history, with identity, with structures, with uh, stories, with history, with media, with companies, with organisations. It, it, Reeling with working out what the economics, what's sustainable, what people can just do, you know, in, in their spare time, figuring that all out, that takes that takes years. That's taken decades. But what's been built and achieved in a massive chunk of time by Daily Bread, you know, and and then taken up by others, um, online magazines like um, Slater Union and B Mag and. Um, Roller news in their own way. What's what's been pioneered uh, by the mushroom blading guys? Um, what's now being born with this new wave of YouTubes and, and podcasts? Um, I mean, the extraordinary achievement of John Julio with all his various companies, and especially Valo and now them skates. Um, you know, in other places, uh, sustained by razors, by rollerblade, by uh, K2, by USD. Um, in, a, in a whole other high-end niche way with um, uh, Adapt brand that 
we're finding ways to build um, a new and sustainable a kind of rollerblading that will be there even if it is like <laughs> bodyboarding or lacrosse or um, European handball you know even if it's a, a more minority sport still it won't go away sport and I think it's hopeful for much more than that I think there's sufficient inevitably sufficient versatility um, and appeal to rollerblading that it, it um, you know it, 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 I, I think it, there's got a future much stronger than that so the final thing in terms of what killed rollerblading is the question, of course, what will bring it back? <laughs> now, again, hear what I said right towards the start, bringing it back to 20, 30 million in the US, man, nothing. Well, aiming for that, I, you'll be praying. <laughs> you'll be praying for a miracle and doing a rain dance. But bringing it to a, a new, higher level of visibility, economic strength, uh, attractiveness for sponsorship money, um, maturity, institutional mis- maturity to ger- generate its own internal um, uh, financial strength and revenue, all that kind of stuff. What's that going to take? On one level, it is just everybody, each individual, skating, buying skates, teaching their kids to skate, being seen skating, of course. You know, and so that's an appeal that comes up often on various media and discussions and formats. And I totally agree. Like, uh, yeah, it's just do your bit to raise the profile, to be involved, to pass it on. If we stop doing that, if everybody stops doing that, of course, rollerblading is dead, dead, dead. <laughs> um, uh, although it's such a cool, obvious thing that I don't think you could kill it. I think it will always claw its way back because putting wheels on feet is just such a cool idea you know like can you kill bicycles can you (laughs) can you kill roller i just don't think you can um in that sense um who killed surfing i just don't think you can kill it on one level do you know what i mean um but that's not actually gonna that can't be the full picture you know and um because humans and human decisions and human interests and human activity is far more interwoven and complex than that. Um, and so in this closing section and touching on this, um, I want to draw on a, um, uh, a chapter um, uh, from a book by a, um, a Christian academic called James Davison Hunter. I think he's at the University of Virginia. Um, and his book, this is it's about particularly about religion and and the religious right and the religious left and and different approaches to world changing. His book's called "To Change the World," um, with the subtitle "The Irony, Tragedy, and Possibility of Christianity in the Late Modern World." It was published in 2010 by Oxford University Press, um, and he structures it around a series of what he's called essays. Essay one is Christianity and World Changing which is um, a chapter of that, is what I'll be talking about um, in this final section. And then essay two, we talked about rethinking power. Uh, essay three, toward a new city commons, reflections on a theology of faithful presence. Um, and, and particularly in, in, in that first essay, uh, and in chapter four as a part of that, he, he presents a view of culture and cultural change in 11 propositions. Um, and I think it's really 
rich stuff that really helpfully applies to rollerblading as well. And, and what he's doing here is responding to overly simplistic views of culture and cultural change that um, is especially kind of the fruit of Western individualism and idealism, this idea that individual people changed by ideas <laughs> will change the world, that all you need to do is get ideas out there into one mind at a time and change one mind at a time and then you'll change the world. And he's responding to that kind of simplistic, idea-based, individual-based view by saying actually people and culture is way more communal and way more structural than that. And that's what these 11 propositions are about. So in the same way, we just can't change one rollerblader at a time, one rollerblader at a time, and that will bring rollerblading back. It's not quite that simple. There are other factors at work that generate the money and keep people rollerblading and bring in people out some narrow pyramid selling scheme of you and me inviting our friends. You know, eventually we'll run out of friends to invite, you know, just like you run out, only so many people can really make a living off selling Herbalife meal supplements, you know. <laughs> so anyway, here's his first proposition. Proposition one, culture is a system of truth claims and moral obligations. Yep. So yes, there is a sense in which um, there is a, um, you know, there are certain realities about what's cool, what's not cool, what's fit and what's not fit, what's desirable and not desirable, and um, and yes, so yes, rollerblading fits into that. You know, is rollerblading cool? Is it desirable? Does it make you healthy? Um, is it an option? Yes. So yes, yeah, okay. Um, so that's part of the puzzle. But proposition two, culture is a product of history. And so you can't uh, you can't just consider rolling as an excellent form of fitness in the abstract or rollerblading stunts aggressive skating as astonishing in the abstract. It's a fruit of history. It'll be read through the grid of history. It'll be allowed or not allowed and, and located or not located based on history. And, and so there is a sense in which history and the form and the patterns of, of being um, it's okay for it to take some time, just as it did with surfing and skateboarding. They they had gradual adoption and then lulls and then resurgence until they've become beyond uh, fad and they've become just part of reality in a way that would take a lot to change. Uh, proposition three, culture is intrinsically dialectical. So that is that culture inevitably uh, results with with something and then a reaction to that something and then a new solution out of that something, uh, just as aggressive skating is a dialectic of of inline skating and urban skateboarding and, and that produces aggressive inline skating and then mushroom blading is a dialectic of intense aggressive skating and, uh, <laughs> and a rediscovery of recreational skating into some new reality and these kinds of things uh, blossoming forward. Um, so you can't just bottle rollerblade and then bring it back. <laughs> You've got to ride this wave. Um, uh, uh, as a part of that as well, um, he says part of this, this process is also um, there is a, a dialectic that uh, relates between individuals and institutions. Um, uh, um and so Davison Hunter says, one must view culture not only as a normative order reflected in well-established symbols, but also as the organisation of human activity surrounding the production, 
distribution, manipulation and administration of those symbols. Another way to say this is that culture is intrinsically dialectical. It is generated and exists at the interface between ideas and institutions, between the symbolic and the social physical environment. So you see that this is where it then introduces this fact that you can't escape the X Games, Daily Bread, podcasts, movies, jokes, um, fashion. You can't escape these parts as part of the whole reality of rollerblading. Um, uh, so he says, well, we individuals are not powerless by any stretch of the imagination institutions have much greater power. So his fourth proposition, culture is a resource and as such a form of power. So the ability to make culture and decide what is and what is not, what is acceptable, what is not, what is cool, what is not, that power that skateboarding had to a certain degree, that rollerblading struggled to have, that in small ways some of us have, but only to a very limited extent. Um, you know, what what sticks and why it sticks, who's allowed to say what sticks and not, um, that kind of symbolic capital, cultural capital, um, and leverage and so on, uh, that's, um, you know, <laughs> that's part of the picture too. Um, and endorsements and recognition is part of the picture too. Proposition five, culture, production, and symbolic capital are stratified in fairly rigid structure of centre and periphery. That's just a recognition that uh, some TV channels are more powerful than others, some media outlets are more powerful than others, um, some podcasts are more powerful than others. Um, you know, and, and, and so, so just that's a second. And next, we just need to go, yeah, look, part of the reality is in addition to whatever we can do individually and in the grassroots, there's a degree to which there are things outside of our control on our own. Proposition six, culture is de generated within networks. Um, so that is, there's more to what will bring back rollerblading or what establishes action sports than great individuals, great skaters, great pioneers and mouthpieces, you know, the, the Arlo's and Chris Edwards and whoever else's. Um, uh, here's what Davison Hunter says. The only problem with this perspective of great men of history or great women of history is that it is mostly wrong. Against this great man view of history and culture, I would argue, along with many others, that the key actor in history is not individual genius, but rather the network and the new institutions that are created out of those networks. And the more dense the network, that is the more active and interactive the network, the more influential it could be. This is where the stuff of culture and cultural change is produced. My point is simply that a Charisma and genius and their cultural consequences do not exist outside of networks of similarly oriented people and similarly aligned institutions. So yeah, building institutions and websites and magazines and companies and networks and businesses and associations, we did scramble to do that and did a great job of that through the 90s. Um, <laughs> we need to keep doing that. But we then also need to network those wherever possible with other institutions and, and networks and so on. Proposition seven, culture is neither autonomous nor fully coherent. So this is saying it, uh, culture in the end isn't held by any one magazine or competition or TV game or person. In the end, it's not owned um, and can't be governed simply by one boardroom or one decision. It wasn't the removal from the X Games that, um, that completely decided what was gonna happen um, was rollerblading. In some extent, what they did was forced um, by factors that were already going on outside their control. 
culture is composed of a whole bunch of fields operating independently and interdependently. You know, which means that in a sense you can't bring rollerblading back in any sense. You can't pull all the strings. To some extent, all of the things we've unpacked so far can only be observed and we can try and contribute to it, but we can't make it happen. Um, proposition 8. Cultures change from the top down, rarely, if ever, from the bottom up. Um, so it's depressing, but that's just the reality that the elite, the powerful, the influential can press the button, pull the trigger to make change happen. Um, and that even those grassroots movements that seem to be grassroots movements, what turn them into total movements, by and large, I'm not sure if entirely, but by and large, is when key people, maybe behind the scenes, open the floodgates, broadcast on a whole new level, that something might be viral genius, but it's often only when it then gets picked up by the media that suddenly it goes viral, viral. <laughs> you know, without that extra bit of media interest, a viral thing is still relatively small. And so that's that sense to which um, some people have disproportionate ability and power to bring rollerblading back. <laughs> and you or I, no matter what we do, are limited to a certain degree if those people um, don't choose to unlock those things. Um, at one point, uh, he quotes... Um, uh, he reframes the statements of, a, of another writer and says, under specific conditions and circumstances, ideas have consequences. Um, and so, in a sense, there are networks and these institutions that we depend, depend on. He says, cultural change is most enduring when it perpetuates the structure of our imagination, frameworks of knowledge and discussion, the perception of everyday reality. This rarely, if ever, happens through grassroots political mobilisation. Through grassroots mobilisation can be a manifestation of deeper cultural transformation. Change of this nature can only come from the top down. So it's this thing of, to some extent, we need the people who shape our minds to shape our minds. <laughs> and that even includes something as small as rollerblading. Um, and who are those people? Well, Proposition 9, change is typically initiated by elites who are outside the centermost position of prestige. So there's the centre of influence, there's a periphery, and then those just outside the centre. Um, uh, he, he says, these kinds of distinctions are important because change is often initiated outside of the centermost positions. When change is initiated in the centre, it typically comes from outside of the centre's nucleus. Wherever innovation begins, it comes as a challenge to the dominant ideas and moral systems defined by the elites who possess the highest levels of symbolic capital. Innovation, in other words, generally moves from elites and the institutions they lead to the general population, but among elites who do not necessarily occupy the highest echelons of prestige, the novelty they represent and offer calls into question the rightness and legitimacy of the establishment. So there's a sense in which... <laughs> well, we'll bring rollerblading back. It won't necessarily be those who are already in the peak. It won't be the Olympics that brings it back. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? But it's going to be someone just outside that who can usher it in with a fresh perspective. Um, problem 10, world changing is most concentrated when the networks of elites and the institutions they lead overlap. So 
if rollerblading hits a point where there's a sufficient number of rollerbladers who are trying to rattle the cages for rollerblading or sympathetic people to rollerblading in enough overlapping places of media and influence and business and institution um, and, and, and health organisations and sport organisations and school, um, PE departments, all these sorts of things. And Proposition 11, cultures change, but rarely, if ever, without a fight. <laughs> so there you go. Um, uh, culture, he says, is a, has a life independent of individual mind, feeling and will. Indeed, it's not so much individual hearts and minds that move cultures, but cultures that ultimately shape the hearts and minds and thus direct the lives of individuals. The movement between the individual and culture, in other words, goes in both directions and perhaps even more strongly. In what does that mean? That means no one can bring rollerblading back. I can't bring rollerblading back. You can't bring rollerblading back. It, what killed rollerblading? Things that we didn't even know, that no one was fully in control of. What will bring it back? Well, no single thing can. So all of this means that to bring blading back requires a whole bunch of things, right? Um, uh, that we can't immediately control. And it's no one thing, so it's not like you can just get something in the mainstream media or just get one major, high-profile, elite sponsor, uh, corporate sponsor, and then that brings blading back. It's it's this network of things, right? It's, it's perhaps it's the corporate sponsor that decides to do that and the inclusion in film and then just a celebrity skater. And, you know, it's a string of these little things that all kind of converge together. Um, but then they need to converge together again with, with kind of some uh, underlying sense of normality, attractiveness, legitimacy, you know. Um, uh, at the end of his um, uh, 11 principles, um, Davison Hunter uh, sums up um, by by kind of saying that uh, the big lesson to learn from this is that you cannot simply uh, change culture or bring blading back simply by mere force of will or individual inspiration. Um, talking about like the religious right uh, in America, he quotes one of their leaders from Focus on the Family uh, and says, uh, all these, uh, these principles tell you... Um, uh, that cultures are profoundly resistant to intentional change, period. They are certainly resistant to the mere exertion of will by ordinary individuals or by a well-organised movement of individuals. The idea suggested by James Dobson, focus on the family, that, quote, in one generation you can change the whole culture is nothing short of ludicrous. Um, you, you can maybe change, he says, particular political systems or economic conditions fairly quickly, but the really profound changes in culture that last and endure take generations to establish. And that's partly, you know, the, the fad of, um, of inline skating is very different to a sustained presence of rollerblading as a sport, a recreational sport, an action sport, um, all that kind of stuff, this fabric. It speaks about the most profound changes in culture as uh, first seen as they penetrate into the linguistic and mythic fabric of a social order. And you know what? What linguistic and mythic fabric of the social order did rollerblading find its way into? Rollerblading sucks. <laughs> that's that's the the mythic role it plays, and so that change and shift to penetrate 
the way we see social life. It's got to be a big change, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, you can't really engineer this stuff. It's only seen in retrospect, he says. Um, it's, a, it's a much larger stuff, um, larger work uh, in order to achieve this. Um, and he says, like, you know, like you think about, um, uh, you know, he gives an example, right? Imagine some kind of massive change um, to, uh, to American life, which led to um, a massive number of people being convinced about something, a massive number of new organizations and institutions and media and people established in government institutions and education and laws being changed. Imagine all of those things taking place um, uh, that still that won't necessarily produce long-term cultural change. He said that's exactly what the temperance movement was. Uh, the temperance movement uh, brought a lot of people on board. It produced a lot of structures. It even made law changes, but it didn't last. Um, with the repeal of the Volstead Act in 1933, uh, the temperance movement as a concept finally just disappeared because it couldn't change the underlying culture. Um, and so in the same way, you could maybe even bring rollerblading back for another faddish heyday, but it still wouldn't last if it didn't actually get under the skin in some larger way, you know. Um, so, so, And then one final thing he says um, uh, uh, as a warning is that even if you could change culture, it may end up backfiring. You may end up producing something that you didn't want, that unintentionally the kind of culture change you produce is terrible. You know, so we bring rollerblading back in a way that kills John Julio and them skates. You know, we bring rollerblading back and it becomes repulsive, corporate, rank, all the things that are worse get highlighted. It comes back and it comes back in the most disgusting version of spandex dance rollerblading. Not kind of cool, ironic, clever, fun mushroom blading, but just gross rollerblading. I don't know, you know, so whatever it is, right, you, you can't necessarily, um, you know, you bring rollerblading back and in the end it produces a massive resurgence of quad skating entirely and rollerblading is vanished. I don't know what it is, right, but, but you, you get the point, right, that um, you can't necessarily assume that even if you could bring about the effect you want to bring about, it, it, that it will look quite the way, you know, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> Interesting thoughts, eh? Um, uh, and, and so... And so what? Well, look, so beware of any uh, idealistic promise that a single method or a single approach or a single strategy or a single company or a single thing explains or can guarantee, you know, what happened in the past or what will happen in the future. Beware of that. And in the meantime, any strategy that seeks to have any kind of substantial influence on the nature of rollerblading will have to be multi-layered uh, based not simply on awesome skate, not simply on core companies, but a whole bunch of levels all at once. And I think the most level-headed commentators get that right. They get that it's about media, it's about uh, the recreational aspects of the sport, it's about visibility, it's about um, mainstream visibility, it's about a million things and not simply high visibility of spectacular tricks, nor simply about the X Games, nor simply about um, oh, a bunch of rollerbladers are idiots and that's why rollerblading isn't big or whatever. It's a bunch of much larger things that need to be put in place. All right, I'm done. 
see ya. Mad Beef Rollerblading Podcast is produced by Mikey Lynch. Theme music by Edifice Architect. You can subscribe to us on SoundCloud, iTunes and Stitcher and get in touch with us on our Facebook page. Mad Beef is supported by Skater HQ. You can find them online at skaterhq.com.au. We are also supported by our growing number of Patreon patrons. To support the podcast, find us on Patreon. Even just $2 a month, every little bit helps.